And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I first met Ivo Dalder when he was a highly regarded U.S. representative to NATO. He has a long history in national security, uh, both as a member of the National Security Council uh, in the State Department and as uh, an author and a scholar. Now he heads the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. And I sat down with him the other day to talk about U.S. policy towards Syria, North Korea, and some of the other hot spots around the world. Ivo Dalder, welcome. You know, there's been a lot of talk about immigration lately. You, you are an immigrant. Um, I mentioned to you before the show, you have all of these very, very impressive academic, diplomatic credentials, but not a lot has been written about your your early life, which took place in Europe. Yeah, no, I am an immigrant. I came here to go to graduate school uh, and uh, met my wife, married her for a green card, and 31 <laughs> years later, we're still married. As, so. as we said, there's uh, the immigration system working. <laughs> exactly. So. Um, but, but, uh, t- but talk about your, your family and your early life. So I grew up in Holland, uh, Dutch parents. Uh, my father was uh, an academic, uh, uh, non-Jewish. My mother was Jewish. They're both uh, war generation uh, people. They went through the war. My father was in northern Holland uh, during the war, which was uh, not liberated until 1945 and went through the worst uh, winter, 44, 45. More people died in that. Did he talk to you about that? A lot. Uh, the war was very vivid in, in, in uh, an occupation uh, and living through the occupation. My parents uh, were uh, uh, 12 when the war started, 17, 18 when the war ended. Uh, so their teenage years, they spent through uh, all that time there. And um, your mother lost a lot of her family. My mother was Jewish uh, and uh, spent the first two years of the, the occupation in Holland, but then in a pretty harrowing escape uh, with her uh, older sister and mother, was able to make it to Switzerland, and uh, she spent the last two years of the war there. But the rest of the family uh, was, uh, was, was annihilated, as so many others in, uh, in Holland. So I'm interested in, um, uh, in how that was talked about in the home, I mean, and what lessons were imparted uh, about that horrible, horrible uh, episode in our history. So w- one thing was it was talked about, and in many other uh, families in Europe who went through the war, but including in Holland, the war was not an issue. People didn't talk about it. They were either, they wanted to forget about it, they wanted to look to the future. But in, in, in my case, the dinner table uh, war was uh, was always there in some form or another. There was always a story that had an aspect uh, of uh, either pre-war or post-war or war-related uh, that was part of, uh, of my upbringing. Um, and I learned a n- number of things. Uh, uh, one, I think, uh, a deep love and appreciation for the United States. It's one of the reasons I wanted to come here. Uh, it was the country that liberated Europe. It was the country that liberated uh, uh, my uh, my, my family. Um, uh, and that was always important. Both my parents were very much Anglophiles, uh, both British in, in some ways more than, uh, than American, but deeply appreciative of, of what had happened in uh, 4045. Um, and the second thing that, that was important to me was uh, Europe uh, needed to find a way to 
to avoid having wars, uh, which is which was the first half of the 20th century, uh, and the European project, uh, partly. Uh, as we now know from history, of course, uh, stimulated by the United States, but also something that was deep in the European psyche, the idea that finding ways to cooperate, to overcome divisions that had led to uh, extraordinary uh, uh, destruction uh, for so many years, um, uh, and uh, to, uh, to find a way uh, to have a new chapter in history, no longer war, but yeah. peace and cooperation, prosperity. Uh, and you, of course, became a scholar, ambassador to NATO. And um, I, I, I want to, down the line here, I want to get to what the state, the current state of Europe is and these institutions that were built to try and ensure the kind of stability that you, uh, that you talk about. Um, what, what about your, uh, your Jewish identity? Is that... Uh, did, did you did you identify that way, and how much how much did that play into what was talked about in your home? Uh, little, uh, particularly on the religious side, none. Uh, my mother always said I became a Jew because Hitler told me I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, her Jewish, she was from a completely assimilated family. Um, uh, she told the story that. Uh, uh, when they had to go to a Jewish high school, Jews owned by, in 1942, she went uh, to school on Yom Kippur and the doors were closed and she had no idea where and why. And she told her mother when she came home, the, the school's closed. And my grandmother said, well, maybe it's something Jewish. Mm-hmm. Uh, turned out it was uh, the most important holiday. Uh, so that was not part of my, uh, uh, of my upbringing um, in terms of a religious sense, but in an ethnic sense it was, uh, and a strong affinity to Israel, a uh, strong belief that uh, uh, Jews had, to, uh, had, had gone through a very horrible period and now there was the opportunity to, to see if there was a better future. That was part of, uh, uh, of, my, uh, of my upbringing. Uh, and, and, and since it was the only religion that I really identified with, I've, I've, I've married a, a Jewish, uh, I have a Jewish wife, we have a Jewish home. Uh, and that's part of, of, of who we have become, but it wasn't really part of my, my own early history. How much did your family's experience, uh, you, I know you were involved um, in the 90s in the uh, uh, in Bosnia and some of the uh, events there, how, how much did uh, your family's experience with ethnic cleansing and the kind of horrific, uh, um, uh, horrific uh, uh, activities that the Nazis engaged in that you, they felt? Uh, how much did that inform your thinking later as a scholar, as a diplomat, as an, then you were at the National Security Council? On, on, it, on how one deals with it in its early stages. Uh, a lot in, in many ways. I mean, it was this idea that something terrible actually can happen. Uh, so there is a deep pessimism when you when you read history. You know that things can really go bad. Uh, and of course, the Yugoslav War came at a time when th- things looked like they were moving in a direction that we hadn't seen uh, ever before. The Cold War was over, the Soviet Union had collapsed, uh, there was the, the, the big peace dividend was coming out, it was the idea that we were entering a completely new era, George Bush called it the New World Order, and here is this really early 19th or 20th century 
uh, return to extraordinary conflict uh, with concentration camps for the first time uh, uh, again since 1945 in Europe. Uh, and the idea that this should not stand, that something had to be done, uh, uh, and that the United States, as the most important country, could not stand by and let this happen, uh, was very much part of my thinking, of my uh, uh, way of you were You businesses. were covering the Europe desk at the NSC at the time. Yeah, I came in, so I came to the NSC in August of 1995. In fact, my first day uh, in the office was when the, uh, the, what was then called the Intelligence National Daily, the, the, the National Intelligence Daily, sort of the, 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 the version of the presidential daily brief that non-important people mm-hmm. like me <laughs> right. uh, can see, had the pictures of Srebrenica, the uh, extraordinary proof uh, of a mass killing that had happened uh, uh, weeks before, that later, the next day, Madeleine Albright, as UN Secretary, uh, UN Secretary uh, Ambassador to the UN, showed to the UN and the world. Um, so my, my initial day there was all about Bosnia and what was horrific. Um, I wasn't part of, but I observed the change in American policy that uh, happened as a result of it. There was this famous incident where Al Gore walked into the Oval Office to Bill Clinton and said, my daughter asked me uh, why it is that we're letting this happen. This was the day that the New York Times had a front page picture of a woman who had hung herself uh, because she had lost her entire family. And at that point with Dick Holbrook and Tony Lake and other people, uh, Madeleine Albright, uh, decided to change policy and really to, to find a way to end that war. Uh, but that was three, The administration three was in. not... Uh Quick out of the box. No, that was three years that. into that war. Yeah, uh, and uh, there was a. Remember, in in uh, when when Bill Clinton was elected in 1992, there was this Cold War fatigue. The Cold War was over. We we'd had a successful war, uh, uh, in uh, in uh, the Persian Gulf against Iraq and threw him out of Kuwait. Uh, but Bill Clinton came in, which focused, was which, which was quick and quick and, and easy, and relatively easy, right. uh, and, uh, and 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 successful right. uh, in in its attempt. And there was this idea that now we needed to focus like a laser beam, as Bill Clinton put it, on the uh, on the economy uh, and rebuilt the economy. It's how we won the election uh, against uh, George Bush. And foreign policy was a diversion uh, for many in in the White House. And then you had a series of crises. Uh, Somalia, uh, Haiti, Bosnia that brought to the forefront this idea that maybe you couldn't ignore what was happening in the world and you really had to start thinking about how to deal with uh, the world in a way that that made sure that uh, uh, American leadership, American uh, presence, engagement, uh, involvement, military and diplomatic was necessary uh, still, uh, in fact, in some ways more now than it had been even during the Cold War. You know, you 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 raised something interesting that I hadn't really thought about, but Clinton did get elected on an economic plank. And so you 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 your boss Tony Lake, the national security advisor, probably had a a, a, a tough job because there was a focus on domestic issues and, and he had to go in and persuade the president uh, on not just the substance and the humanitarian, but also the politics of this and what it would mean not to not to act. And it took a while. 
in some ways for 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 Lake to and and, and Sandy Berger, who was his deputy, uh, two very important people in the White House, who Sandy in some ways politically closer to Clinton, uh, even than Tony than Tony was, uh, to remind the White House writ large and the president in particular that what was happening beyond the borders of the United States was going to have an impact on what was happening inside uh, those borders politically. In the end, in the end, if you wanted to be elected and re-elected in 1996, you couldn't have had a war like Bosnia continuing on the forefront of the uh, television screens. But also, factually, for the United States to succeed in the world, uh, it needs to be engaged abroad. It, it doesn't have the luxury, uh, as frankly every other country has, to ignore what's happening in the world, only to focus on what's happening here, because the world looks to the United States uh, yeah, to be there. A, it's an interesting concept. I'm not sure that it's the it's the prevailing theory in the White House today. No, it's not, and I think that's one of the big changes. Uh, I think one of the realities is that from Roosevelt through Obama, in one form or another, however imperfect at times uh, presidents may have acted, there was this sense of an obligation uh, that the United States... Uh, for its own narrow self-interest, its own security, its own prosperity, indeed even its own freedom, needed to be engaged in the world, that we could no longer be the country that we had been for 150 years, to stand aside, let two oceans and, and, and good neighbors uh, keep us safe, that uh, inevitably because of the power that we had uh, and the importance we had in the global economy and the global system, uh, we would have to be part of what was happening in the world. And every president, in one form or another, uh, accommodated himself, either came into office knowing that that was the case. Richard Nixon, Dwight Eisenhower during the Cold War was a little easier, uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, or learned it, uh, like I think Bill Clinton did, uh, and in some ways George Bush did, uh, George W. Bush, who, who also was elected thinking that he could focus on what was uh, happening at home, but had the rude wake-up call of 9-11. Uh, and in some ways, uh, um, Barack Obama, the same, he had the financial crisis, which had an international dimension, so forced him to be international in that way. Yeah, but I remember the- very clearly that uh, that period because he arrived at the White House in the midst of a global financial crisis, which involved, as you say, uh, dealing with actors around the world to try and deal with, uh, to, to try and confront it, but also two wars and 180,000 right. troops in, in, in active combat zones. He, he couldn't ignore it. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, but what is the consequence of, uh, of this change in policy? I mean, what does it mean for America not to play the organizing role? America really has been the organizing power since World War II uh, in these global institutions, uh, but that's not been the case the last two years and probably won't for the next two. Uh, well, in the book that Jim Lindsay and I just, just wrote, yes. The Empty Throne, we, we call it the, the abdication of global leadership, um, means one of two things. Either somebody else is going to take the place that the United States always had, or no one will take the place. Uh, so when you look at the, the uh, who is out there who can take our place, um, uh, it's China. Uh, a rising power, uh, and if China is going to work to build institutions uh, to be diplomatically involved to resolve 
crises or, or, or to advance its own interests, it's going to do it in a way that benefits Beijing. Uh, and uh, because it, China doesn't have allies, it doesn't have friends, it's only going to look at what is good for Beijing uh, and what's good for China. It's not trying to create a system that upholds an order uh, that benefits more countries than itself, but just itself. Uh, and that unlike, is very unlikely to be in our benefit. It's probably going to be at our expense economically, uh, militarily, politically, uh, socially, and in other ways. Um, the other possibility is, is that, in fact, no one really takes control and that you return to a world that we have known very well, uh, in, uh, particularly in the interwar period. And in a run-up to uh, World War One, a world of competing great powers where everybody is seeking their own advantage, uh, their own sphere of influence, their own ways of trying to get control of their both immediate neighborhoods, of their economic supply lines, of everything that is, that, uh, is necessary for them to, see to succeed in the competition of power. Uh, and that power competition can be balanced for a while, uh, as it was in times during the 19th century, uh, but it can also get out of whack, and it always does get out of whack and gets resolved in a way that history resolves these problems. That is war. kind of a Trumpian vision, though. That, it is. That, uh, it is. that every country pursues its self-interest and the strong will prevail. And his belief is that because we're stronger than anybody else, we will win. Um, and, uh, and that's right. Uh, the question is, what's the cost? Uh, for one, would we be better off if we continue the order-building, order-shaping, order-leading kind of foreign policy that we've had for 70 years, which has been the longest period of peace and prosperity and freedom for the most number of people in, in history? Or should we go back to a competitive world where ultimately we did end World War I on our terms? Uh, we did win World War II. But the cost of doing so were extraordinary. And now we live in an age of, of nuclear weapons, which we've never done before, and uh, had no wars in which nuclear weapons were uh, possessed by more than one country. Uh, we live in an age of cyber and, and, and space uh, capabilities that are far more frightening and far more destructive than anything we've seen in the past. Uh, so are we really sure that we can win that competition? Aren't we better off to do what we have done for the last 70 years to see how can we maintain our standing with our allies, with our friends, which is the great advantage we have over every other potential competitor? We have allies. They have clients. Uh, uh, aren't we much better off working with those allies to achieve uh, the objectives of creating an order that benefits us, benefits them, by the way, as well, uh, but benefits us in terms of our security, our, our prosperity, and, and indeed our freedom. Uh, a world in which everybody is out for themselves is a world in which destructive nationalist forces uh, are more likely to, uh, to take control. I know a guy who probably agrees with your analysis named Jim Mattis, who until recently was a Secretary of Defense. I suspect uh, Tillerson uh, shared your point of view on these issues. Uh, uh, McMaster, the former National Security Advisor, probably shared your view on, on, these, uh, on these issues. But they're all gone. They're all gone, and they all failed in, in, in forcing Trump back into uh, into the more traditional pattern of, of foreign policy. You know, we had a, this idea early on in, in, in 2017, throughout 2017, really that because you had 
these these uh, these generals and these grown-up people surrounding uh, the president, including I, I include you know, John Kelly uh, and uh, uh, Gary Cohn, who was the national economic advisor, and people like that, that somehow they would be able to guide Trump back into a, a uh, way of dealing with the world that was more known, more traditional, more along the lines of where they were. And one by one, they either resigned. Uh, Gary Cohn did. He resigned when the tariffs were put on our allies on steel and aluminum imports because those imports were supposedly a threat to our national security. Uh, and he said, that's not the policy I can support. Uh, Jim Mattis uh, just recently, of course, resigned in what was the more, most remarkable letter of resignation in which he neither thanked the president uh, but then went out and said, this is what I believe in, and obviously you don't believe in this. Uh, and what he believed in was allies and partners and working together mm-hmm. with other countries. Um, so Trump is now, frankly, uh, being Trump. And what we are seeing is a foreign policy that he said he was going to wanted to run on, uh, uh, wanted to run when he ran. Um, and yeah, exactly. And, and what I guess he would say and his supporters would say is, this is who he said he was. This is what he said he would do. And on those issues that you raise, um, you know, trade, for example, he, he ran on a protectionist platform. He ran against the trade deals, said he felt America had been taken advantage of. He's really following through on what he campaigned on. Yeah, I think that's a, a exactly right. And he can... Uh, rightly claim that he's just doing what he said he was going to do. I mean, he's had the same view about foreign policy and the, America's role in the world for 30 years. Uh, it hasn't changed uh, on trade, um, on, on all re- of these issues. Yeah, I don't uh, know. I, you must know. You must study Trump more deeply than I. I didn't know that he had well-developed views on, on these on, issues. On, on, on trade, he did. On, on, on trade, he did. did. And, and, and on the idea that our allies were taking advantage of us. That they, they, the, the idea that the United States was being played for a sucker. Uh, is something that he's been saying for 30 years. He did this uh, ad in the New York Times in 1987, uh, an open letter to the American people in which he made all those arguments. It wasn't that different from what he's actually doing now, even though the world has changed. Um, uh, So in that sense, he's implementing the policies. Uh, They're not policies that his own party uh, embraced uh, at any time, certainly on trade. His own party is his own party now, which means that it is, but they, even even so, even on an issue like NATO, uh, for example, when he went to uh, to Brussels for the NATO summit, the the, the only summit he uh, he's had so far, uh, the U.S. Senate voted uh, ninety-nine to one to reaffirm America's commitment to NATO, and the House voted unanimously. Yeah. Um, so there is a strong view that this is important. Uh, it's not clear among, that he among the public it. this there is a there is this um, uh, there is a political argument that has some power, which is, why are we spending our money on other countries? Why, is, why aren't they paying for their own defense, uh, prosperous countries? Uh, he, he made, made hay with that. Yeah, and he does. He does. And, and, he, has, and he has a point. Uh, uh, clearly, after, uh, for, one, it is a point that every U.S. president since Harry Truman has made. Uh, back in 1952, Truman said that uh, uh, Europe needed to do more on defense, uh, and every president has done it since. Um, no president has made uh, our commitment to their defense conditional 
uh, on that kind of uh, uh, financial commitment, and that's one way in which uh, Trump is a little uh, little different uh, than his predecessors. But he's right. Uh, clearly, uh, uh, as, as Barack Obama said, uh, free riders aggravate me. Uh, a lot of these countries are free riding. They uh, are, enjoy the benefit of an American defense commitment to their security. Uh, I would go further. Uh, they enjoy the benefit of a United States that believes that maintaining security globally is in its own interest, but other countries are going to benefit from that. If you believe in open and free markets, then you're not the only country that is going to benefit from it. Others are going to be as well. And the great insight of the greatest generation uh, uh, back and uh, in during and immediately after World War II was this idea that the United States could secure uh, its, itself by making other people secure, that it could be prosperous right. by making other people prosperous, that it could be free by making other people free. And that was the idea of what we now call the liberal world order, the rules-based order. Uh, and that if you seek your security at the expense of others, you're more likely to be insecure in the long run. If you, secure, if you seek your prosperity at the expense of others, which is what we're trying to do now by saying that we shouldn't run trade deficits, um, you're more likely to be poorer. Uh, and indeed, if you seek your freedom at the expense of others, you may undermine your own freedom in the long run. You, uh, I'm glad you went to NATO because um, you went to NATO. And, and I want to get back to your biography. You, you dipped in and out of academia. Uh, and uh, in the Obama administration, you were the U.S. representative uh, to NATO. Did you make this, these arguments uh, to your colleagues and how were they received? The uh, the financial ones, yes, yeah, I, you know, I have the bruises still to show on my on my head, um, and there was a general understanding uh, that the argument was right, um, but that the political will to do more on defense uh, just wasn't there. In part because people didn't see the threat, they didn't see you couldn't mobilize. Uh, your domestic constituency. I mean, we thought, for example, maybe what we should do is not put together defense ministers who all agree that we should do more on defense but can't uh, convince their own governments, let alone their parliaments, that that's the case, but bring together the finance ministers. And we thought about what we need to do is get finance ministers to come together um, uh, and and have this uh, discussion. so, yes, we pushed. Uh, we succeeded sometimes in some places. We probably succeeded more in terms of real military operations. So take two, Afghanistan. Remember, the president uh, was faced with this uh, request for 40,000 more troops. Yes, uh, in President order, Obama. Uh, president yeah. Obama. Uh, and uh, there was a long debate in which you uh, witnessed, yeah. uh, which would, in which I did as well, on whether to do 40,000 troops. And in the end, he said, well, why don't we do 30, and maybe we can get the Allies to do 10. Uh, and the Allies did do 10. Uh, and even today... Uh, of the 16,000 troops that are part of the NATO mission, 7,500 are provided by NATO countries. Um, so NATO has been part of, uh, of the Afghanistan mission from the very beginning, uh, that that mission has been uh, an international one. So that's one thing. And, of course, the Libya conflict. Uh, we can go back whether that was the right or wrong decision. but uh, Was it? Uh, uh, yeah, I think it was the right decision. I think we executed it. And- I think we may have executed it in the wrong way in the end. I think we should have stopped bombing a lot sooner. I think we achieved most of our objectives a lot earlier than we did. Um, what about the aftermath? Was enough attention paid to that? 
not enough given uh, the, given what what happened afterwards. I think there was a presumption in Washington that the Europeans would provide. This was a, a war that really had started at the urging of the French and the and the British. That uh, President Obama was reluctant to join, but then said, "If we are going to do it, we're going to help you to succeed." Um, the idea was, "We will enable you uh, to to execute the mission." Ninety five percent of the bombing. Uh, the bombs were dropped, were dropped by European countries, not by the United States. This is um, one area where he's expressed uh, some regret. He, he has, and he uh, and uh, he he said that uh, we we should have done more. We should have done more on the planning and uh, post war, and we dropped we, we the United States dropped the ball, the Allies dropped the ball. Uh, I'm I'm more skeptical. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm not sure that having owned post war Libya would have been such a great idea. We haven't had a great record. Uh, yeah, you've written a lot about this, uh, and this is really a big question. Uh, and he used to say, President Obama, the, the lesson that he derived from Iraq and uh, that whole experience was uh, don't, and Colin Powell used to talk about yeah. this, don't get in unless you know how you're going to get out. Exactly. Um, and this... But this also is one of the things that animates this frustration that Trump has tapped into. We've been now 17 years in Afghanistan, and these wars seem endless, and people are weary. Uh, and I, I think that's exactly where we are. One of the reasons there's the sense that Americans want to retrench from the world is because we've had 18 years of war, none of them particularly successful. Um, and I do think the time has come for all of us to sit down and say, what is it that we can do with military force? What is it we can do with uh, the diplomatic and other instruments in these kinds of countries? And I think uh, President Obama came into office pretty reluctant and I think over eight years uh, reaffirmed the idea that we as a country have the capacity, uh, both for in terms of, of our willingness and, and of, of using the resources we have, uh, but also even the capacity to change the internal dynamics of other countries. Uh, is, is limited. We probably can't. And therefore, a mission that has that as the only way to succeed is probably not a mission that is worthwhile. That clearly, I think, was his thinking on Syria. Uh, in some ways, it was the thinking on, on Libya, which ran out of, out of hand. And I think it is one of the big lessons that we're learning. We're better off at ending wars than building peace. Uh, and so even if you look at it, Another conflict I was involved in in the 1990s in Bosnia. We ended the war in Bosnia, uh, but we're still uh, nowhere on building the real peace. Now, there's no fighting. Nobody's being killed. There are no concentration camps. There's no ethnic cleansing, and it is far preferable than the alternative, and I think it's a good thing. Uh, in Kosovo, same thing. By the way, we still have troops in Kosovo, even today, to make sure that the fighting doesn't restart. But the idea that you then can move to the next level uh, and really start rebuilding these societies in our image. I think that is a lesson we should now have learned over 25 years. Is something that we're just not very good at, uh, and uh, even if we had the will, the will to engage in it. It's a huge debate, and you know it's interesting. Uh, Senator McCain obviously was a big proponent of America's capacity to do just that. Yep. Um, Senator Graham was as well. Uh, but now is and I think we're having this debate over Syria right now. This idea that somehow, if we stay with two thousand more troops and we stay a little longer, that things will get better. Um, and I do think it is healthy 
for us as a nation to start debating all of those questions. And if, if there is one salutary impact of the strange decision-making process that Donald Trump employs in the White House is that he's actually starting to have those questions be asked uh, on Syria. Uh, you agree with him on the fundamental issue of whether we should be in Syria or not. I think the fundamental question of whether we have the capacity to achieve the objectives we set set for ourselves is real. I don't think we have the willingness, I'm not even sure we have the capability, uh, to forge a peace on our terms in Syria. Uh, I do think we have the capacity, military and otherwise, um, uh, to go after ISIS. But once you have achieved that, then what? How long do you need to stay? How long is our commitment? These are fundamental questions uh, that presidents have to, must uh, answer them uh, for themselves, and the nation should debate. And I think the debate has shifted too far in the direction of the McCain, uh, Lindsey Graham, and frankly, the military, the general's uh, point of view, which is that a little, staying a little longer, using a little bit more force, uh, and being willing to do just a little bit more will allow us to succeed. When in fact, I think 18 years in Afghanistan, when the situation today in some ways is no better than it was when we founded in 08, and in many ways no better than in 04 or 05, uh, you're asking yourself, what, are, what is it that we're trying to do here? And that debate uh, isn't happening in Washington. You're making, you're making in some ways the Trump argument. I'm making an argument that we need to have a serious debate about how to think about this. And if Trump is the, is the, 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 the one who starts that, uh, all, all the better. What I would like him to do is to have that debate internally with his uh, uh, advisors uh, and then come out with an agreed strategy uh, rather than tweeting, this is what I'm going to do, and then they figure out what the strategy is afterwards. Um, so I do think a policy process that you witness in the White House, uh, that I witness in the White and House— mo- is, And frankly, uh, most— Administrations, all Republican of, and Democrat, engage in uh, all of them do in one form or another. Right. Some are better than others, and 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 uh, well, not know, all of them, not this um, one. But this one does has no process. Yeah. It has uh, a president who uh, governs on instinct, uh, and everybody else uh, just has to accommodate himself to that instinct. Well, instinct and impulse, I would say. Well, instinct in the sense that, you know, he thought we shouldn't be there and therefore let's just go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the impulse is the decision to say, well, today yeah. I'm, I'm waking up and I've decided uh, this is what we're going to do. So Iraq, the, one of the there, – there are a couple of lingering debates. We talked about one of them um, relative to Libya. But the decision – and I think you were at NATO at the time to uh, withdraw all the troops from Iraq has become – one that's been relitigated many times, and you hear it from Senator Graham and others. Right. Uh, talk to me about that. You you must have been part of those discussions, or, or at least certainly you were the one who had to explain them. Well, there was, to so your, there was a very small NATO training mission in Iraq, which had to be withdrawn when when we withdrew. But the really fundamental debate was taking place in Washington and in Baghdad, not in, not in Brussels. So I was a, more an observer of that debate. Uh, I, I was part uh, of, uh, in the transition between uh, uh, the election of, of, of Barack Obama and his inauguration, I was part of the team that uh, did the transition for the National Security Council. And we had intensive conversations at that time um, because uh, we, the U.S., were negotiating with the Iraqis on a status of forces agreement. Uh, which, signed in December of 2008, ended America's military 
presence in Iraq by the end of 2011. Uh, that was a decision and a, and a, and a treaty and, a, and a, an agreement negotiated by the Bush administration uh, and signed by the Bush administration. Everybody kind of winks and nods on that one. Well, they all huh? say, well, yeah, but we should have just stayed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it, it is true that some of the people who were negotiating that agreement thought that, you know, let's do three years and we'll revisit it later. But others didn't, uh, including Doug Lute. Uh, who was uh, the Iraq war czar in the Bush administration and stayed on. to the NSC. Uh, and the NSC, and was my successor actually at NATO as, as uh, U.S. ambassador, uh, uh, who uh, believed that this was the right move. And um, the well, question you know, I have you is— You know what the argument is. If, if these troops had stayed, yeah, 25,000 troops— Or, t- or 5,000 a year or 10,000. Or ISIS, uh, you know, am, we would not have— Seen the resurgence? Of- I think the resurgence of ISIS would have happened. Would have been slower, and it might not have happened. I think there is some, uh, there's some truth to that. Would we have fundamentally uh, altered the course of history? I'm not so sure. I mean, the reality is that Iraq is a wholly owned subsidiary of Iran. Uh, uh, that is the that is the big geopolitical consequence of uh, of the war that we started in 2003, um, and that's. What really mattered? Yes, ISIS was a threat. It might not have emerged in the same way. It probably would, but it would have emerged in Syria in some way or or another. And this idea that somehow a little bit of troops, and this is what Colin Powell used to say, I get really weary when when people start saying a little bit more bombing and we'll be fine. Uh, I think it's a lesson we can learn from the post-war period. Uh, we can learn it from uh, our interventions in in. Uh, in Europe, in, in Bosnia, there are some things we can do, but there are other things we can't. Um, and the idea that somehow a long-term military commitment um, will somehow magically work. I think a real big, large military commitment, hundreds of thousands of troops staying for 50 or 60 or 70 years, that may work. But is that something we want to be doing? Uh, that may be true when you win World War II, and when, it come, when your enemies are Germany and Japan, I'm not sure it's what you want to do in a place like Afghanistan, Iraq, or Syria. How about the decision, this, the decisions on Syria? Um, I mean, based on what you've said, you you don't uh, you have grave doubts about uh, about um, interventions that have no end point to them or end strategy to them. Um, what what could or should have been done in Syria that wasn't done? Well, I do think the red line was a problem. Not when President Obama of, said he would when he said he would he, he would not it, tolerate the use of chemical, chemical weapons. weapons. And and, um, and and I think when a president of the United States makes a strong commitment like that, uh, he needs to follow through. Um, I think if he had tied the threat of the use of force directly to the removal of chemical weapons from Syria which is, in fact, what happened in the end, uh, we would have had a, a textbook example of coercive diplomacy, of using the threat of force to get a diplomatic end. And in some ways, that's where we stumbled into. Um, but I think we, uh, president's words are important. I think we're finding this right now. Uh, when the president of the United States says one thing and the administration does another thing, uh, countries around the world say, well, I don't know who I can trust. I don't know who I can live with. Uh, so the, the, the president's word is, is important. The basic animating force of, of President Obama was the idea that unless I know how this ends, right. I'm not willing to get in. 
I think was the right choice. And I think we learned in places like Somalia, in places like even the Balkans and certainly in Iraq, that getting a little bit pregnant is not really an option. Uh, you either in, in which case you get pulled all the way, uh, or you maybe uh, uh, shouldn't get involved. And I think the idea that a little bit of arming of some people here and a little bit of uh, 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 no-fly zone there would sort of fundamentally change the course of the, of the Syrian um, uh, conflict, I, I, I don't buy. Um, a larger question is whether particularly the red line and the unwillingness to the overt unwillingness to really get involved militarily open up the door to the Russians uh, to get involved. And I do think um, that uh, countering Russian influence anywhere outside of Russia is something that is very important to us. That's why I have a strong uh, belief that we should have done more in the Ukraine, uh, as it is uh, countering more to, to counter the Chinese in, in, uh, in East Asia uh, is important because these are countries that can actually uh, fundamentally affect our, our real existential uh, interests. And I think focusing on those threats um, and, and building strong coalitions with our allies to countering those threats is something that's very important. And we haven't always succeeded in that. As we talk about the Middle East, we had this major event, and we've had a series that you've written about uh, events that all lead to... Uh, uh, MBS uh, in Saudi Arabia uh, and the assassination of Khashoggi, uh, the journalist, but also other activities that he has been uh, involved in and uh, all apparently with the um, ascent of, of the U.S. What is the impact of that? I think the way in which the administration dealt with the Khashoggi uh, fallout, and particularly the president himself in this incredible statement that he issued sometime in November, where he basically said, because they buy stuff from us, we don't really care what it is that they do, uh, has uh, come as, a, as an eye-opener, uh, frankly, to people in the United States, the U.S. Senate, uh, moved quite deliberately and strongly against uh, uh, the idea that this was the kind of behavior that one could expect from the president of the United States. But also, I think, uh, again, of countries around the world. They, uh, in some ways, have taken the measure uh, that the way you can get something from Donald Trump is to give him something that he cares about, which basically is money, uh, and uh, it is a transactional uh, relationship. Uh, and out of that, uh, uh, you can you can build a, a future. Not exactly relationship. clear how much money the U.S. has actually gotten well, the, from the Saudis. That's the that's the the, the tragedy. The tragedy is both uh, on the particularly on the military side uh, that the hundred and ten billion dollars they keep talking about turns out is only fourteen billion dollars, all of which were contracts uh, first negotiated and and uh, uh, decided under under President Obama. Um, but more importantly, the idea that there somehow is an alternative, that the Saudis can go and right. start buying Russian yes. weapons or Chinese weapons. Well, they can't because yep. those weapons need to – people, pilots need to be trained and the munitions need to work and they need to be uh, kept in, uh, in, in, in good order. You can't just take an, 
the U.S. Air Force, which is what uh, in many ways the Saudis have with the largest F-15 uh, purchaser uh, aside from Israel and the United States, uh, and say, okay, we're going to we're going to get MiGs, uh, and now we're going to do that and, and, and hope that you're as effective. But so. your original point is the right one, which is um, that uh, the, the amorality of saying uh, you do, you, we are not going to interpose ourselves, so there, there, is no, um, there is no U.S. position on assassinations or some of the other abuses that we've seen on human rights. Uh, that as as long as we can make the transaction, uh, we you know we're we're fine, and um, yep. I do think that as you look at some of the autocrats around the world, some of the uh, bad actors around the world, there is a sense that they feel empowered, that they're green lighted uh, to abuse their own citizens and do the kinds of things that the U.S. was uh, in the past the first to stand up and object to. Yeah, no, I think you can debate the question about the degree to which American opposition and su- support for human rights and opposition to this kind of behavior affected the calculations of countries. I actually think it probably did a hell of a lot more than people realize. Uh, but even we can also you, debate. We 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 can also debate whether we've been as consistent uh, in, in, right, in, in, exactly. in executing that. So mm-hmm. there, there, you know, it's not like before Trump, everything was hunky dory, and the world was only listening to the United States, and we were very uh, consistent uh, on that, and it was hugely effective. Um, but there's little doubt that by abandoning uh, that kind of posture, not even saying anything about the horrific nature of what happened, uh, have no consequences uh, to these actions. It wasn't a question of whether we should blow up the alliance with Saudi Arabia. There's, there is more than embrace and total acceptance and blowing up a relationship that you can do. I think George H.W. Bush showed that with China after the Tiananmen Square, where there was a public condemnation, but quietly there was a way to try to figure out means to, uh, to work together Bill Clinton ran on the idea that we're not going to deal with the butchers of Beijing, uh, and that and and Beijing was brought into the WTO under under Bill Clinton's leadership. Um, so there there are ways in which you can you 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 can tangle this, but this president has gone all the way to one side, which is it doesn't really matter what other countries do. I'm not going to lecture you about what other countries do. Uh, I, I'm, I just want to And in fact, I he was benefit. explicit about that in Riyadh in one of his early speeches. He was. He was in his first big speech and his first visit. I mean, the idea that the president of the United States, that the first visit you make anywhere in the world is not Canada or Mexico, not London or Berlin, not Tokyo or, or Seoul, but Riyadh is remarkable. And it sort of sent the message that it doesn't really matter what you do and how you do it, as long as you pay. Talk a little bit about Russia. Obviously, there's a lot of interest in that, uh, in part because of the president's odd sort of posture toward yeah. toward Russia. But, you know, I remember when President Obama said in uh, uh, the debate that he had with Mitt Romney, Romney said Russia was the number one threat the U.S. faced, and the president ridiculed him and said it was a, Russia was a, a regional power. Um, but Russia is a provocative uh, adversary, and we saw it in our own election, obviously, and uh, in there, in Syria, in Ukraine. Um, how concerned are you about a, uh, a resurgent Russia 
and the mischief that it can create? Or is it, like some people suggest, a, a crumbling economic power that um, that Putin is, is, is propping up with bravado? I'm, I'm concerned because of that latter way of thinking. I do think that, this, that Russia is a declining superpower. It's no longer a superpower. It's a declining power. But declining powers, particularly those who have military means like Putin still possesses, can be extremely dangerous. Uh, and I, although I don't think it's the greatest geostrategic threat we faced, if there is one, it's China, it's not Russia. But I do think it's a very serious competitor of the United States that whose goal it is to weaken our power. And it's going to try to do that uh, through a very old-fashioned way, which is to divide us internally and to divide us from our allies. And it's been Russian policy, Soviet policy, uh, for decades to try to find weak spots in our alignments within, within our alliances to undermine those. Uh, and now that he's taken that to the new level, to find weak spots in our own country and aggravate them and divide us. And he's been extraordinarily successful. Leave aside what, what would have happened in 2016 without this. Just leave that aside. He has deeply divided the country uh, uh, in a way that only benefits Russia, in which we have seen changes in political alignment with regard to Russia, where the president, not only the president, but the Republican Party has become more sympathetic to Russia. Um, and, and we now have a debate about this constantly. That, that's not good for the United States. It's wonderful for Russia. He's doing the same thing in Europe. You, yeah, I want to talk about Europe. You, you've suggested that in the absence of American leadership, there should be a new constellation of countries that fill in the void that include you know, South Korea, Australia, Japan, uh, Germany, France, Italy, uh, the Great Britain, Canada. Um, but Europe itself is 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 enmeshed in all kinds of political uh, turmoil. You've got the Brexit uh, situation in Britain. Macron seems to be in 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 really deep trouble in uh, in France. Merkel is leaving, and it's not clear what follows her uh, in Germany. Italy is in the thrall of uh, right wing uh, politics. So. Where is the where is the ballast <laughs> that you suggest? The ballast at the moment it's not in Europe uh, for all the reasons that you uh, that that you uh, lay out. I think uh, uh, the United Kingdom has taken a, a holiday from history for the last three years by being completely and totally consumed with uh, trying to figure out its relationship with Europe. Uh, at the expense of Britain, frankly, of Europe, and everybody else. Um, Holiday from history, I like that. That's, well, it's, I'm going to have to uh, steal that. Unfortunately, this is where where we're at. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think Merkel is is beyond the end of her tenure. Uh, she just doesn't have the energy and the political ballast to support her. So, a new political alignment and a new uh, uh, way will be found. I actually think I'm pretty optimistic on that. I think the Greens uh, are the most, uh, right now, the most uh, supportive internationalist party and, and on the rise. Um, the, the CDU is still uh, reasonably strong, so there, there, there's a future there. Uh, uh, Macron, is who was the hope of uh, the great liberal uh, hope for so many, uh, has uh, proven that he uh, he was a little far forward on his skis, as, as uh, Colin Powell once said. Yeah, he's deep um, into a drift and, right and now. He's, and he's, well, I don't know, and the, the, the danger is it's not clear how he gets out of it uh, and where his salvation is. He has very little 
uh, people to hang on and on and 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 support. So he he's he's in trouble, and uh, foreign policy is not going to be the way to get him out of it. I mean, a lot uh, of so, all the stuff when you what you see in 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 most of many of these instances, certainly in Britain, in France, in Italy, is a class based kind of revolt against the economic elites and you see some of that in yeah. the Trump it's it's the same phenomenon I do, I do think if there is one area that the national security community needs to look at is this question of intervention and and whether that's the best way to think about how we uh, deal with countries that are problematical whether it's humanitarian or terrorism or other consequences that we just talked about the other one is the economic one I mean globalization has been extraordinarily beneficial for an extraordinary number of people. Uh, more people have escaped poverty uh, in the past 25 years than at any point in history. Uh, Nick Kristof had a nice piece the other day in the New York Times about uh, 2018 being yet another great year in which so many good things happened to individuals. Uh, but that's the macro sense. On a micro, micro level, there are winners and losers in this game. Uh, and uh, our political system and our economic system and maybe our capitalist system hasn't been very good at figuring out how to make sure that those who are not immediately benefiting from globalization, uh, from technological change, uh, can still be part and parcel of that system. Yeah, and I think there's a challenge. cultural overlay here as well. My view is that uh, technology has churned so rapidly and has turbocharged globalization, yep. turbocharged economic change. And if you're on the right side of the divide and you can take advantage of these changes, there's enormous opportunity. But if you're in the on the other side of the divide and you're disrupted, uh, then uh, then you have a completely different view. And, and then the way we communicate uh, has allowed us to kind of silo ourselves into these communities, uh, and, and including communities of grievance right. that right. only fan some of this uh, discontent. So um, these, are, these are challenging times for democracy and capitalism. Yeah, no, they are. They're very big uh, issues. And, and uh, the natural tendency... Politically, is to because it's short. It's a short-term kind of uh, activity, is to turn inward and to focus immediately on what is happening in your own country, uh, and to uh, mobilize political support through nationalism, through saying we're better than the others, and to use the old-fashioned way of mobilizing political support at times of crisis by finding an enemy, by either internal or external, and populism on the left and the right. Uh, is using uh, uh, that that means of differentiation, and so it is in a f in a very fundamental way, sort of attacking the core essence of what post 1945 West looked like, which was the idea that rather than looking at your neighbor as an enemy, to look at your neighbor as a partner, as someone you cooperate with, you work together with, you find ways to. But as you, as you point out, if people feel like they are not benefiting from this, then, you know, there's going to be discontent. It seems to me there's, there's pressure on both governments and on the, the economic elites to Absolutely. recognize this and find ways to broaden these circles of opportunity. Uh, or you're just, you're courting more yellow jacket revolts like the one we saw in France. You're fueling the kind of energies that elected a Donald Trump. 
or or, or led to Brexit. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. I think if and and this is not this is this is a whole of society effort that needs to start at educational institutions about how you educate people to be adaptive to change and this rapid technological change that you were talking about. It has to involve civil society uh, and and a whole variety of groups that uh, can deal with the. Uh, the, out, the, the the consequences of rapid change for those, particularly those who are not necessarily benefiting immediately, and it has to happen at the political and at the corporate level. And there's a change uh, happening on the corporate level. The idea that they're that just thinking about the bottom line and uh, shareholders' immediate interest as the only thing that matters, uh, an idea that comes out of the University of Chicago, Milton Friedman. Uh, is starting to say, no, maybe we have other obligations. We have social obligations. We have uh, climate climate and sustainability obligations. And that we should think about what we do, not just in terms of the bottom line, but in a larger context. Uh, we cannot succeed unless there is a workforce that allows us to succeed. So what do we do on the educational side? Uh, so there is a public-private uh, uh, need uh, of coll- collaboration that's quite different from what we've seen in the last Thirty or so years. You you said earlier that we you know you don't want to get into a situation where you have to send in large numbers of troops for, you know because you, you might have to be there for fifty or sixty years. We've been in Korea uh, that long. Yep. Um, what's your assessment of 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 where we are now uh, relative to North Korea after uh, after the president's uh, bromance with uh, Kim Jong Un? Well, the good news is we didn't have a war, uh, and uh, when you when we were entering tw- 2018 a year ago, it looked like that that's where we were heading, right. uh, given the rhetoric, both really on both sides, uh, when we were trading uh, who had the bigger nuclear button and fire and fury and everything yes. like that, and Rocket that's a good thing. Um, uh, but the situation we find ourselves in is frankly unchanged from the situation it was when we were uh, shooting uh, uh, verbal rockets at each other. Um, and in some ways, uh, it, 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 if there is a side that is move, that is winning, in some ways, it's it's, it's the North Koreans. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, I, it was orthodoxy, and not, not, orthodoxy doesn't make it right. That there are certain things that North Korea wanted. One was respectability, being treated as a, uh, a legitimate actor on the global. Stage they got that. Another was uh, for American military exercises to stop with South Korea uh, in that region. They got that. Uh, I'm trying to figure out what America got. No war for now is one, but it seems like um, a lot was given away for very little. Yeah, in fact, the, the one thing we got so far is a freeze on missile and nuclear testing by the North Koreans, and that was the North Korean proposal. Let's do a freeze for a freeze, which and the Russians— And it's not clear whether they needed to do more testing. Well, they, they probably— They achieved uh, uh, quite a bit in the year before that. They, they certainly have a huge uh, nuclear capability, uh, and there is there is a debate— uh, at least in the in the public sphere, I don't know what it is in the private in the intelligence sphere about whether they now have the capacity to actually launch a nuclear weapon uh, against the United States uh, uh, territory. But they're they're darn close, uh, and, and so they have achieved a fundamental reality of being a nuclear power, uh, and, uh, and they don't need to test uh, in in that sense. So that's a reality uh, that was true, by the way, before Donald Trump became president. 
Uh, it, it a lot of presidents have a lot of been confounded by the this North is, Koreans. This is a difficult He's planning issue. on meeting, apparently, with Kim Jong-un again. Uh, is well, that uh, advisable? Well, if we knew what it is that he was trying to achieve uh, and what, the, what the, the roadmap is. But what he has now done is he has made it clear to the North Koreans that there is no one in his administration who can speak for him on, to the North Koreans and that the only negotiating path is a path that runs through Donald Trump. Uh, and that's a dangerous thing because Donald Trump can't be negotiating every agreement with everybody, and he certainly doesn't have the process that allows you to get to that point. Normally, one of the reasons presidents don't meet until the very end to solve the fundamental mm -hmm. issues is because you want to know where the problems lie, uh, what the issues are that need to be resolved, to get as much of the agreement done before you get Generally, to Generally, you point. know what's going to happen in those meetings because yeah, all or, the work has been all, done. All the work except maybe one or two issues. Mm -hmm. And then you know that that's the, and maybe only the leaders can bring that, that one or two issue home. Um, but in this case, we started off with a presidential leader uh, meeting. Uh, and, uh, and the North Koreans learned that even though we're sending Pompeo and other people out there uh, to try to negotiate with them, they're not interested because well, they know they, they, they can't deliver. They've also uh, they've sized up the president, and he apparently shares all of his letters from Kim Jong-un with visitors to the Oval Office. Well, he, uh, you know, he, the president is convinced that a good personal relationship with a leader uh, can substitute for uh, uh, the, the relationship between countries. Yeah. Countries have interests. Uh, so it's also subject to flattery. He's, uh, obviously, it's one of the things that, uh, that, that the president likes. He likes to be liked. Uh, as he said, we're in love uh, uh, at one of his rallies. Um, but that doesn't, that, that doesn't and can't substitute for policy, which is why we are where we are, a country North Korea that still has significant nuclear weapons, missile capabilities, uh, that is slowly but surely being brought back in the world. Uh, he, uh, he has another uh, uh, meeting in Beijing with Xi Jinping, uh, not a fourth time that they have met uh, uh, since, uh, uh, since uh, the, the beginning of last year. Uh, there's a stronger relationship between the South Korean president and the North Korean leader. Uh, and we have a president of the United States who says that uh, he looks forward to having another meeting. And a national security advisor says that the only way to resolve uh, the differences that we have is at the leader level. So now we know there's nothing going to happen until leaders meet. And we know when, leader, when, when this leader meets, it's not clear where we're going to end up. It's so, not, a, not a good situation. So what is the – project forward for two years. It could be eight uh, or six more years. But what, what, where is America going to be in 2021 relative to where it was in, uh, in 2017? The most important way to think about it is that in 2017, what happened in the world, uh, uh, that all actors in the world had to think about what Washington would, was going to think or do about what they were about to embark on, whether it was a trade negotiation or a negotiation on climate change or using military force or having a coup, the United States was a major, major presence in the mind of global leaders. Uh, it mattered what the U.S. thought did or didn't do. I'm not clear that in 2021 the world's leaders will still be thinking about what the United States 
Because the vacuum will be filled. Because the vacuum would be filled or it's just there. So if you look at trade negotiations, there are at the moment about 100 different trade negotiations going on, and the United States is party to one. Mm -hmm. um, other countries are now negotiating trade agreement. The TPP, which President uh, Obama finished in, in, in 2016. Multilateral uh, trade. Multilateral trade with the, the uh, with the Asian uh, and uh, Pacific countries. Uh, we walked away. First, the first thing he did, uh, President Trump, in 2017, it is now going into force among the 11 that remained. We have an agreement between uh, the European Union and Canada, the European Union and Japan. Um, other countries are, uh, China is negotiating trade agreements with, uh, with folks uh, all over the world. And we're standing by. And I think that's what we're going to be, a world in which the United States is a, but no longer the most important actor. And can the United States rebuild its leadership? It's going to be more difficult every day goes by uh, because these relationships are in part based on power, but they're really based on trust. You, you don't alliance relationships and relationships with friends are based on the idea that someone's word matters, that when they say we will do X, that X will happen. Uh, and that trust is broken uh, in a very fundamental way. And just as in a, in a marriage where trust has been broken, it's very hard to put it back together. It's not impossible, but it's very hard. Um, so in this case, um, I, I don't see uh, a lot of European countries or Asian friends or countries around the world believing that America's word is still important. Uh, and so rebuilding that will take time uh, and a lot of effort. And I think that whoever is president next, uh, whether a Democrat or Republican, uh, that is goal and, and must be goal number one. How do you reestablish trust as a means to leadership uh, around the world? Ivo Dalder, good to be with you. Uh, you. You do wonderful work at the uh, council here, a uh, great institution in Chicago, and it's good to have you. Great. Thanks, David. Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.